Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A look at how epidemiologists are approaching their personal returns to everyday life. How Denmark has quadrupled their cardiac arrest survival rate and whether the same system could be adopted in other nations. And a program that will make your website inaccessible to visitors every single night, all in the name of improving health and well-being. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. As more people in some parts of the world get vaccinated, discussions in those nations have turned a bit tense as people disagree on how safe we now are. And I don't want to wade into that debate too much, except to offer one perspective I saw recently, which is that apart from the reality of immunocompromised people and folks living with kids or other people who can't get the vaccine yet, some people who are still maintaining various preventative measures may be doing so less out of logical concern or some kind of political pandemic theater and more so out of a need for an adjustment period. You know, especially people who had more traumatic experiences during the pandemic or suffered anxiety even before the pandemic. It can take time to readjust to this new normal. You know, some people need more time to steadily wade back into certain aspects of life, while others have no problem making an immediate transition. But wherever you or the people in your life fall on that continuum, I thought it would be interesting to see how some of the people who are the most informed are handling their personal transitions back to everyday life. So last year, I shared an informal survey the New York Times conducted of U.S.-based epidemiologists and how comfortable they were engaging in various activities. They've checked back in with the group of over 700 periodically throughout the pandemic, and today, the Times published their most recent update. So just like the last survey in December, the epidemiologists were asked once again if they had done or would have been comfortable doing various activities in the last 30 days. Several activities saw a dramatic increase in the number of epidemiologists who had or would have done them, like getting a haircut, interacting outside within six feet without a mask on, vacationing overnight within driving distance, attending a small indoor dinner party, and the largest increase by far, hugging or shaking hands when greeting a friend. Although I should note that many of those are hovering just at or below 50%. While the hugging and shaking hands one was a huge jump, it's still just at 39% because it was close to zero in December. Some activities that were hovering around that halfway mark in December are now more than half or close to a consensus. Activities like bringing in the mail without precautions, gathering outdoors with friends, and running errands in person. But then there are some that remain under 15% that have barely budged since the winter. And those include exercising at a gym, attending a wedding or funeral, going out with someone they don't know, and attending events like church, sports, and concerts. Now, given that we're talking about people who have spent their careers studying disease control, you can assume they're the types of people who take precautions the most seriously. But it also means they may have a certain perspective on which precautions are actually less necessary. Like Joe Lunard, an epidemiologist at the University of California, Berkeley, who says the policy to wear a mask when exercising outdoors was, quote, always idiotic, end quote. 
Now, others disagree with Leonard and say that if you can't maintain distance, a mask is still a good idea outside, especially with the rise of variants for which the vaccines may be less effective, or if you're hanging around unvaccinated people or can't be sure if you are or not. And while only 5% of the surveyed epidemiologists say vaccinated people should wear a mask outside while walking alone, 88% said vaccinated people should still wear a mask at large outdoor events, like a concert or a protest. Again, mostly because you're almost certainly going to have unvaccinated people in the mix and you won't be sure who they are. Jana Mossy, an epidemiologist who retired from Drexel University, told the Times, quote, There's a strong likelihood that we will experience unexpected problems due to moving about as if the COVID pandemic was no longer a threat, end quote. But the overall vibe from epidemiologists was, quote, When enough Americans become immunized and infections decrease, the country could enter a new phase, when coronavirus precautions would become less about minimizing risk as much as possible and more about making choices based on one's individual risk tolerance and health profile. End quote. And this seems to be echoed in how various epidemiologists surveyed are handling their personal lives now. Stephanie Leonard, an epidemiologist at Stanford, said, quote, I would be more comfortable taking risks if I didn't have young, unvaccinated children whom I want to keep healthy and who need to be in daycare for me to keep working, end quote. And the Times noted a stark difference between the types of risks respondents have had to make peace with depending on what their day-to-day -day lives look like. In particular, they surveyed two groups of epidemiologists, one who primarily works in academia and one who primarily works for governments. The former has been able to work remotely or in solo offices more easily, while the latter were more likely to work in shared office spaces. And this was reflected in their responses, quoting again, 8% of the academics said fully vaccinated people should still avoid socializing indoors, while just a single government epidemiologist said so, end quote. And here again, we get a tension between how much some people's lives were truly altered during the pandemic and how much they may be struggling to come to grips with these changes, positive or safe as they may be. And others may not have had a choice and have had to rewire their brains to be okay with that. Of course, that's not a hard and fast rule. A lot of it is also just personality and baked-in risk tolerance. Though I do like how a lot of these epidemiologists assess risk trade-offs. To many of them, it's about minimizing, not eliminating risk, and weighing it with other consequences. I also like this quote from F. DeWolf Miller, who the American Association for Advancement of Science once referred to as a real-life Indiana Jones. He emphasizes that he's not generally risk-averse, but he is somewhat when it comes to COVID. He said, quote, I live in Hawaii and free-dive with sharks. Preventing COVID transmission is another matter, end quote. Many epidemiologists feel we're not quite out of the woods yet when it comes to protecting high-risk people and slowing the spread. Kevin Anderson, who leads the COVID response team at the Colorado Department of Public Health, said, quote, while I am comfortable taking personal risks, I would not tolerate risks that could harm others. COVID precautions protect everyone, not just me, end quote. But most do think that day is coming, that we're getting close. As Jane Clarity, who teaches public health at Drexel University, concluded, quote, We've all learned how very resilient we are. This too shall pass, and we're finally seeing the evidence, end quote.
Denmark has quadrupled the number of survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest over the last two decades, and part of that increased survival rate is due to widespread adoption of a program and technology that also exists here in the U.S., but which has here faced some skepticism and reluctance. As Input Mag puts it, quote, One of the biggest challenges to overcoming fatalities from cardiac arrest is actually reaching patients in those first few minutes after a collapse. The difference between 5 minutes and 10 can significantly alter the odds of survival or of long-term repercussions. But most cardiac arrests happen in a home, and it can take ambulances too long to get to those afflicted. End quote. A possible solution? A smartphone-based system that will dispatch nearby volunteers to help out until emergency services can get there, and tell them where to locate an automated external defibrillator, or AED, on the way. Quoting the Washington Post, In Denmark, the smartphone HeartRunner Community First Responder app allows dispatchers from the National Health Emergency Number 112 nationwide to contact up to 20 volunteers within a 1.1-mile radius from the scene of a cardiac arrest. The dispatcher will alert ambulance services and may guide the person who called in to commence CPR until volunteers arrive. Of the more than 100,000 registered Danish volunteers, 75% do not have a professional background in healthcare, surveys show. But that doesn't matter, says Freddie Lepert, director of Copenhagen Emergency Medical Services, the first service to integrate the HeartRunner app in its services emergency response. You can do the math. If a neighbor can get to the scene and start CPR within three to five minutes of a collapse, there's a reasonable chance of successful resuscitation, he said. If nothing is done for 10 minutes, it's a very low probability of success. End quote. The U.S. equivalent Pulse Point works similarly. Volunteers are made up of people who took CPR training or are off-duty emergency responders. Most of the alerts they get are for public places, not private homes. Verified professionals may be called to private residences in some pilot versions of the program, but civilians are never called to them due to safety and privacy concerns. However, Thomas Rea, a professor of medicine at the University of Washington who studies pre-hospital emergency care and specifically studied these pilot programs of PulsePoint, says the responders were typically well-received and there doesn't seem to be a safety concern in practice. And while some volunteers may worry about legal repercussions if they somehow mess up, Input points out that Good Samaritan laws in most states would protect those attempting to administer emergency care in good faith. Still, having non-professional volunteer strangers enter your home, even to help out, is not something many Americans are as comfortable with as Scandinavians. The Washington Post recounts how the HeartRunner app scenario played out recently in Denmark. Quote, a recent Sunday evening, the fast response of neighbors activated by the HeartRunner app probably saved Eric Harry Caxa, 81, when his heart stopped beating in his home on the outskirts of Hedensted, a small town in western Denmark. Within minutes, 10 strangers living nearby had arrived to his rescue, well before the ambulance arrived 17 minutes after the call. Hanalina Kortegaard, a social and healthcare assistant, and her husband, a truck driver, had just finished dinner when the loud alarm sounded from their HeartRunner app. As they drove to Cax's address, shown on the app's screen, an emergency services operator was dispatching the ambulance and guiding Cax's wife to perform CPR. 
Several other volunteers notified by the app arrived along with the quarter guards carrying multiple AEDs. Quarter guard performed CPR, she said, while another volunteer prepared a defibrillator. With plenty of volunteers available, it was a hectic atmosphere, quarter guard said, but it meant that they could do more than just CPR. Having responded to similar calls in the past, she was comfortable to lead the small army of volunteers and directed some to wait by the main road to guide the ambulance to the house. Others cleared furniture to make room for the stretcher and helped Cax's distressed wife call their daughter. They also helped move Mopsy, the dog, out of the way to the bathroom with a bowl of water. When the ambulance arrived, Caxa was breathing. He survived the ordeal and is now rehabilitating at home. End quote. So, maybe it's time for more widespread adoption of this system. After all, Denmark reports their volunteers can get to a patient in about half the time as their emergency services, and they've seen their survival rate rise from 4% to 16%. That's still not great, of course, but here in the US, our survival rate is just under 10%. As Ray, the professor of medicine who's been studying Pulse Point's pilot program, puts it, quote, maybe we're not thinking forward quite as fast as we could, end quote. So here's an interesting website that's reminiscent of how TV used to work. It's called Night Nights, and it enables you to put your website to sleep at night. And why would you want to do that? to encourage your users to go to bed as well. As the designers say on their site, quote, As technology creators, we tend to build websites that delight, engage, inform, and optimize for profit. Unfortunately, sometimes the success of the experience can also hurt the people that use these websites and negatively impact other aspects of their lives, like their finances, relationships, and health. One of these negative impacts of websites is when their use gets in the way of people's sleep. Sleep debt is a major problem in the Western world and has a lot of negative global health impacts. Helping others get enough sleep is one of the best things you can do to improve their quality of life. By putting your website to sleep at bedtime with Night Night, you can do your part to improve the lives of people that use your website. And by taking universal responsibility for the impact of your website on others, you are taking a small step to improve the world we live in." End quote. Now, my first concern when I heard of this was that nighttime is a different time for people all around the world, but the program apparently uses the clock on each individual visitor's computer, not a time set by the site in a specific time zone, although you as the site owner do get to pick what time the site goes to sleep and wakes up in the visitor's time zones. And they do have an out as well. So when you install it on your site, if someone visits during nighttime for them, they'll be met with a black page and simple small white text that reads, It's late. Nothing we can offer you is more important than your sleep. Sleep well, sweet dreams, and we'll catch you in the morning. This site will wake up at 6 a.m. And then a barely visible hyperlink below that says, I'll sleep later, I really need to use this site right now, which enables the visitor to still access the site if need be. Night Night is freely available to install by just copying and pasting a few lines of code into your site. It was conceptualized by Masamichi Suzu and built by Neely Worldwide. And on the site, they get a bit more into the dangers of not sleeping enough, as well as the idea of, as they said, universal responsibility, which could sound a little lofty and preachy, but honestly, I found it refreshing. They wrote, quote, Universal responsibility is the idea that as designers and technology creators, we must take responsibility for all of the outcomes of our creations. There's no limit to our liability. We have a responsibility to create great product experiences for people, but we also have a responsibility to care 
care for their general well-being and health. We must care for them enough to help them step away from our product and get a good night's sleep. End quote. So if you have a site, are you willing to take the risk of putting it to bed every night? And what would our internet experience overall be like if this were a widely adapted feature on websites? Something to think about. So you know how annoying it is when you go to a website and it's so covered in ads and bombarded with pop-ups and autoplay videos that you can't even see the article you're trying to read? Well, Ford apparently wants to bring that wonderful experience to the inside of our cars. Motor One spotted a patent filed by Ford for in-car tech that would scan billboards as you drive by them and then interpret the most useful information from the billboard and present it on your vehicle's display. Just another way that what was once eerily prescient technology in Fahrenheit 451 is now seeming quaint in comparison to our impending realities. I mean, hopefully not impending. I have a hard time seeing how this would ever get past safety regulators, since it would be such a major driving distraction. Not to mention, focus groups would eat it alive. But hey, I mean, worse things have happened. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.